the gifts of Deepama. I'd like to begin this talk with a chant from Deepama in Pali, and I'll read what she's going to chant. All formations are impermanent. When one sees this with wisdom, one grows disenchanted with suffering. This is the path to purity. All formations are suffering. When one sees this with wisdom, one grows disenchanted with suffering. This is the path to purity. All formations are non-self. When one sees this with wisdom, one grows disenchanted with suffering. This is the path to purity. And this is a chant she did in 1984 at Insight Meditation Society for some of our teachers' teachers. She's talking about finding freedom through impermanence, no self, and suffering. So who was Deepama? Deepama was a Bengali woman born into the Barua clan. And this clan could trace its lineage back to the original Buddhists in India. And she was she came to practice meditation what was called late in life in her 40s practicing Vipassana meditation, and she came to it through great adversity. Deepama was unusual in that she was a laywoman. She never ordained. And she was a mother and a grandmother. And she achieved very high states of realization. And at the time, that was considered really only reserved for men who were monastic. So she was quite unusual in being a, a lay woman householder. And she became what was called, known as a Buddhist master. And she taught a lot of the Western Vipassana teachers we have studied with, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Cornfield. Some people even affectionately refer to her as a Buddhist patron saint of householders. And actually, when you think about saints, she would fit in that category because she actually had performed some miracles and had a number of psychic powers that people actually witnessed her doing. So technically, she could be a Buddhist saint if we had them. So Deepama knew a lot about loss and suffering. And she really represents somebody who found freedom through that suffering. Some of the difficulties she faced were at 12, her family married to, her, to a man of 25. And when she was 14, uh, her husband took her to Burma or Myanmar. And this was quite difficult for her to be away from her family. She didn't speak the language. 
he had a job there. And she went through a lot of loss with that. And as well as in the 40s, uh, Myanmar Burma was occupied by the Japanese for World War II, and there was a lot of deprivation and difficulty during that time, and she was there then. She also had two children die, which, you know, if that wasn't enough, her husband also died an early death, and she was given a death sentence herself through a heart condition that she had that was quite severe. So there was a lot that happened to her. And I'll talk more about how she went through these adversities and what they were, but I think it's important that there's four gifts of Deepama that allowed her to transform her suffering into freedom. And these four gifts that we can learn from are, the first is samvega, or spiritual urgency. The second is kanti, or patience. The third is sadha, or faith. And the fourth is metta, or loving kindness. So Deepama started with this incredible urgency. She followed it up with patience. She was very patient. And she kept a sense of faith no matter what. And then she really topped off her life and her spiritual practice by becoming the embodiment of loving kindness. So it really shows the progression that we all can do. So beginning with the first one, samvega or spiritual urgency. According to the Buddha, urgency in the practice is brought about by four characteristics. The first is the urgency due to birth the urgency due to old age, the urgency due to disease, and the urgency due to death. And supposedly because we've all been born, we have the urgency to birth. And as we're looking at our photos as a child, we can feel like, wow, here we are, another birth, right? We're here. What's that about? And Deepama knew the urgency of disease. She had this heart disease. She had these three deaths, and she was getting older and really was being aware of these conditions and her own urgency. In Pali, the language of the Buddha, Sangvega translates into a couple of concepts at once, or urgency. One is shock, a sense of shock at the futility of life. The next is a sense of urgency to find a way out of the meaningless cycle of birth, aging, and death. And this urgency also contains a third word called pasada in Pali, which means a clarity or confidence. So it's not just the urgency to get away from suffering. It's the turning towards or the urgency to know what you can have confidence in. So Deepama was really shocked by all the losses. She really had that shock, the urgency to find out what was true. And when after her husband died, she said, I have nothing in this world to cling to. And she kept saying, what can I take with me when I die? She was really looking for, she had jewelry, she, she had some wealth, she had some family around her. And even though her husband had died, she just was really saying, like, what the heck can I take with me when I die? And she even had a daughter who was probably about six to seven at the time. 
She was trying to know what she can trust. And this is an important question for us to ask as part of our intention. What can you take with you when you die? What for you is beyond old age, sickness, and death? Do you know what that is yet? So asking these same questions for yourself. What's your deepest longing? What drives you to practice? What are you trying to know or find? We're certainly not amassing personal wealth on these five-day retreats. We know that. (laughs) Deepama's urgency came from looking at her practice impeccably, and she often would say to people, what's your weakest point of practice? Even when she was prevented from practice, which I'll talk more about later, she still studied and she did home practices. So what is your weakest point? Is it daily sitting? Is it generosity? Is it loving kindness? Just be willing to see. Is it wholesome speech? Is it working with anger or fear? And see about, with loving kindness, closing that gap knowing where your weakest point is and working with it tenderly and kindly. Deepama was so committed with this urgency that even after she woke up, she she never stopped practicing, and she died in a bow to the Buddha. She died bowing to the Buddha with a Sangha member present. It's pretty amazing. (laughs) And she said, never give up the Dharma. Never give up the Dharma. So she really meant that, even in your last bow when you're dying. Don't give up the Dharma. So the second quality that Deepama teaches us is kanti or patience. And that's persisting through setbacks. And in Chinese, the word for patience contains two elements. One is a sword, and the other is a heart. So it's patience is having a sword over your heart. And Deepama was the epitome of patience. She was prevented from practice over and over again. When she was a little girl, she wanted to practice. And you know, that that just didn't happen for young girls. And then she was married, and when she got married and they went to Burma, she saw these monks and she wanted to practice, and her husband said, no, you can't do that, you know, a young girl alone in a monastery. So he encouraged her to wait. And then after her first child died, she wanted to go, and he said, you still can't do it. And then when her second child died, she goes, I'm going to practice. I'm going to sneak out and go practice. And they put a watch on her so she didn't leave because she was so determined. She even made little Buddha statues when she was a girl. She just had such an urgency. And 
And when her, then she had this heart condition and her husband started taking care of her and he finally died and she got so sick she couldn't practice. So it was kind of this irony of all these years wanting to practice and then when, you know, her husband who had said, no, you can't practice, finally died, then she couldn't. She was really on her deathbed. Her doctor gave her a death sentence of just, a, you know, a few short months. And the Buddha came to her in a dream and kind of did a little chant with her. And she just realized, I've got to practice. I've got to do it now. So she went. She had to crawl up the stairs to the meditation hall. She was so weak. And she had an eight-year-old daughter. It was very hard. She left her daughter with her sister and their kids. But again, patience. This very first day she's practicing, I guess she's able to walk later in the day, or it's confusing some of these timelines, but she was bitten by a dog on the very first day of practice. And she had to go to the hospital for rabies shots, and then she had to go back home. And then her daughter wouldn't let her leave when she went back home. So yet again, she was prevented from practicing for more time. And she did home practices until she could finally get back to the retreat center years later. So this is the sword over the heart. Imagine, you know, you're bit by a dog on your first day of retreat. (laughs) She was so concentrated that she didn't even know a dog had bitten her. She just was doing the lifting, moving, placing, and she realized she couldn't move. She's like, I can't move my leg. (laughs) And then she finally looked down, and there was a dog there latched onto her leg. So she kept trying, and her persistence paid off. Krishnamurti says, patience is timeless. Patience is timeless. A Buddhist commentary on the perfections, and patience is one of the ten perfections, says that there's a profound patience that is based on the acknowledgement that everything is empty. There's a profound patience based on the acknowledgement that everything is empty. My Burmese teacher, Upandita, would say that if you could practice any of the paramis or tendencies, patience was the supreme one to bring you to enlightenment. So if you can only do one thing, do the second gift of Deepama, patience. It's not an easy characteristic for Westerners. We don't practice that patience with that profound sense of the emptiness. In China, there's a saying, people in the West are always getting ready to live. So it's creating this timeless, empty, persistent quality to our patience. And Deepama had a story about it that I really liked about searching for jewels. Someone asked her the question, what is the use of mindfulness? She replied, let me tell you an example. If I told you there were some jewels hidden somewhere and asked you to go collect them, you would leave your house and go to where they were hidden. On the way to find the jewelry, you might see a fight break out, and you would stop and watch. But after a while, you would proceed. 
You might see a marriage party going by with their drums, and you would stand there, but again, after a while, you would proceed. You might see a street rally, and you would stop and later proceed. If you're not mindful, you cannot reach your destination to collect the jewelry I have asked you to get. But whenever there is mindfulness, even if there is interruptions and obstacles, you will not get lost. You will proceed on. Mindfulness allows you to reach your goal. It is the great vocation in life which leads to the end of suffering. So your practice is about finding these jewels. And she knew she she got caught up in a marriage party in a street rally. But it's finding this jewel of the Dharma that's still hidden maybe in your life or partially revealed. Keep going. Don't stop anywhere. She also had a nice story around this same concept that's a bit more modern. Ajahn Tanasanti related this to me. It's called Beeline to the Buddha. In Calcutta, a student of Deepama and Manindra's had become financially successful and held a big celebration to bless a new house. I walked up the stairs with Deepama and helped her with her shoes. People were talking and eating, and the stereo was on, and the buoyancy in the atmosphere was like a champagne party. The room was charged with an excited, loud energy. Deepama walked in the door and in her steady, even-paced way immediately made a beeline to the Buddha across the room. When she was in front of the image, she got down on the floor and began bowing right in the middle of everyone eating hors d'oeuvres and celebrating. I realized that for Deepama, no matter what was happening, she had only one aim, and that was the truth. So whether we're at a party or our workplace, can you make a beeline for the Buddha internally, externally? We, we have to do this. The third quality for her was sadha or faith, a gift for us. And she had a tremendous faith that anything was possible. She could do it, you could do it said anyone could wake up, she really didn't want to hear otherwise. And if people would have excuses, she would say, your mind is all stories. Don't think in this way and it won't be a problem. And she really felt there is no problem. Whatever you're saying is the problem with your practice. Don't think in that way. So again, another story, Sharon Salzberg. In 1974, I stopped by Calcutta to say goodbye to Deepama. I told her I'm going back to America for a short time to get my health together, get some more money, and then I'll be back. She shook her head and asserted, No, when you go back to America, you'll be teaching meditation with Joseph. I said, No, I won't. And she said, Yes, you will. And I said, No, I won't. (laughs) Finally, she just looked me in the eye and declared, You can do anything you want to do. It's only your thought that you can't do it that's holding you back. She added, you should teach meditation because you really understand suffering. 
This was a great blessing with which she sent me off back to America. That was over 30 years ago, and she was right. You can do it. She also didn't like any excuses about not having enough time, which we all have this excuse in our culture, don't we? One of her students in Calcutta, Sudipti, she said this, I told Deepama, I have so many concerns with my mother and son. I run a family and large bakery business. It's not possible for me to do Vipassana. Who says? When you are thinking about your son or mother, then think about them mindfully. When you are doing your household work, know that you are doing this. As a human being, it's never possible to solve all your problems. The things you are facing and suffering bring mindfulness to this. Yes, but between my bakery and my family, it's impossible to find even five minutes for meditation. If you can just manage five minutes a day, then do that, Deepama said. It's important to do whatever you can, no matter how little. I know, but I cannot spare five minutes. It's impossible. Nani asked me then if I would meditate her right then and there for five minutes. So I sat with her for five minutes. She gave me instructions in meditation, even though I said I had no time. Somehow I five, found five minutes a day, and I followed her instructions. And from this five minutes, I became so inspired, I did five minutes a day and then more and more. Meditation became my first priority. I wanted to meditate whenever I could. I was able to find longer and longer times to meditate, and soon I was meditating many hours a day into the night sometimes all night after my work was done. I found energy and time I didn't know I had. Now that's not saying that we should be meditating all night, but it's that sense of Deepama encouraging us to do what we can. And one of my friends who's also a teacher, he said, you know, there were times raising his kid that he just would get into the meditation posture before he went to bed. And that could lead to other things. And this confidence or sadha, it's not a faith in yourself or your ego, but it's a faith in the Dharma to shine through us. She wasn't saying, well, you personally can do it. It's you embodying the Dharma can do anything. It's not a self-will thing. It's making yourself available for these five minutes or the next level of practice or closing the gap where your weakest point is. Because this is what the Dharma wants of us and to make room for that. It's a faith that where the Dharma takes occupancy, the faith takes occupancy of you. And she really embodied this faith and brought so much confidence to so many people. She had a student who was bipolar and was able to get through that to some awakening. She had a student who was what's called intellectually challenged, was able to break through to a deeper meditation experience. Many students, all walks of life, all abilities, all different levels of mental health and intelligence, 
everybody was able to find this faith in her presence. And, and you know, I think the Dharma's here, she's here, we can all find that. Make your faith stronger than your mind. That's the key. I'm too old to wake up. I don't have the ability. I've got too many problems. I don't have enough time. Just don't let those Velcro stories latch on. The faith is unvelcros your mind. All those little hooks. Just let them all go. You know, faith has a real visionary quality to it when you let it take over. Again, it's not self. I mean, you're all here because you kind of had a deeper knowing you needed to do this. It's got a visionary, and in Hawaiian they call it a wayfinder. Somebody who stands on the boats and knows where the islands are, even though they've never been there, they see them from the inside of their body. There's no stars. They're in the middle of a storm, but they know which way to go because they feel Hawaii and the islands on the inside. And you can do that with whatever this jewel is that you know is there. Feel it on the inside and let that guide you. That's faith. That's faith. It's not a personal thing. We were all guided to this cushion for some reason. Listen to that. Let that be your deepama. People don't come and sit in silence and, you know, do this kind of thing if they are not guided by some kind of incredible faith and urgency. So you have it. Don't think you don't. Again, Nipama wanted each of us to awaken. She said, if I can do it, you can do it. Meaning this thing that took occupancy of her, that's taken occupancy of each one of us, can guide us all the way home. We'll talk about it more tomorrow, but let yourself be guided all the way home. You can. It's not as far as you think. (laughs) So the fourth and last gift of Deepama was her metta, or loving kindness. And you know, spiritual urgency, that kind of drivenness, if it doesn't have metta or loving kindness, it can get really kind of brutal and almost like a fist that's too tight. <laughs> so the nice thing about metta in this Sangvega, the urgency, is they, they really balance each other. Striving with diligence to go for what you know is true, balance with this tenderness and gentleness and love and compassion. It's the softness, the feminine quality of practices, metta. And Deepama even said at one point, she said, when I'm fully mindful, I'm fully loving. And when I'm fully loving, I'm fully mindful. So at some point, you just wonder, what's what? Makes sense, doesn't it? you're completely present, of course you're loving, and when you're really loving, you're very present. 
And she would say, the practice never leaves me. Because she was in intimate connection with it all the time. She had a relationship with the Buddha Dharma Sangha that you can have too that never left. Why would she want to leave it? Why would you want to abandon it? So it's having that intimacy where everything in your life becomes metta. Everything becomes this connection that's infused with the Buddha Dharma Sangha. And that doesn't mean changing your careers and ordaining. It's a way of life, a resolve with heart. Other saints and awakened beings talk about this. St. John of the Cross said it really well. He said, I no longer tend to the herd, nor have I any other work now that every act is love. Love works so in me that whether things go well or badly, love turns them into one sweetness. So he knew about this. And Deepama had her own version. Deepama made her life one continuous blessing. She offered blessings to all. She blessed people from head to toe, bowing on them, chanting over them, stroking their hair. She invited a student who was an airplane pilot to send loving kindness and blessings to his passengers and his colleagues while he was flying the plane. She said it would make him more alert and make everyone happy as well. Imagine being on an airplane knowing the (laughs) pilot was doing that. Her blessings were not reserved exclusively for people. Before boarding an airplane, she would bestow a blessing upon the plane. Riding in a car was an opportunity to offer a blessing not only to the vehicle, but also to the driver and to the men who pumped the gas. In one of her very first teachings in America, Deepama said, meditation is love. Meditation is love. So she was constantly giving what I call meta baths. She would like do these stroke over people's body that was like bathing people in meta. I really like the image of getting a bath from Deepamar. You could get a bath just from the Buddha Dharma Sangha. And she did uh, emotional versions of bath too. One of my friends told me this story, Patricia Genou Feldman. When I was on my way from Bangkok to Delhi, my plane had a technical problem and I needed to land in Calcutta. I had a 24-hour layover and I thought, this would be a nice way to meet Deepama. I found out where she lived and went to her apartment. When I arrived, I was told she was on a silent retreat and I wouldn't be able to talk to her. I was told to only go to her room, do my bows, and leave. When I went into her room, it happened that she was eating and had her back to me. In the room, there was an incredible energy of calm and softness, and it brought a wave of emotion and tears from me. She could not see me because I was standing behind her, but she must have felt me because she turned around and said to me very softly, It's okay. It's okay. That's all she said. But it was so peaceful and calming. 
She met my heart when it needed it in a very beautiful and spontaneous way. The moment has stayed with me. In times of great difficulty, I remember her simply saying, It's okay. She showed me that everything is okay, and it's all part of our path. So your metta bath, or just, it's okay, it's okay. And this was a common story. When people would come into her presence, they would start crying, and she would just do this kind of soothing with this metta. Or she would give people hugs that were filled with light. Just the other day I talked to someone and he was saying that when she would hug him, his whole body would fill with light. So that's metta bath. But it's, this is possible for each one of us to connect with us, to embody it ourselves. The last part of her metta was laughter. You know, you'd think with somebody that was that urgent, she'd be really serious, but she was goofy. She put on wigs. They'd dress her up and put wigs on her. One time she was teaching a group, and she put her grandson's toy truck bed on her head and started wearing it while she was leading a Dharma group. It's actually a picture of it. It's very funny. She had really a good sense of humor. She would sometimes play around and tease, you know, Joseph. She liked to tease Joseph. That was very sweet. So this urgency was tempered with playfulness. And yet it was big. My friend Asha Greer said, Deepama had a great, vast, empty heart with room for the whole of creation. That's how big the metta was. And in the end, it was, people just said she was love bowing to love. Love bowing to love. There's nobody there. No you practicing metta. What would that be like? Just metta doing itself through you 24-7. That's where you're headed. And whatever got you to that the cushion is going to do that to you. Are you ready for it? <laughs> Maybe it'll take longer if you're not ready. Love bowing to love. So she was like an ocean of metta that naturally included everything. And, you know, it doesn't disappear at death. She said to people, always at the end of a retreat, I'll always be with you. And she didn't just mean in this life. Don't think she was talking about just this life. I'll always be with you. She knew about many lifetimes. So when she said the word always, She really meant it. She'll always be with anybody who practices, and that includes each one of you. She's available. That lady right there. Her benediction to us that included this, always be with you, she would say this, 
Rebecca said at the end of retreats, Whatever I have acquired, the strength, the loving kindness, I extend to you so that you have faith, so that you are in peace. By the grace of the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, may everything be good to you. May you be happy. May you be protected from harm. And may you progress in your meditation. I'll always be with you. So I invite you to use her four qualities, her four gifts of urgency, patience, faith, and loving kindness for this retreat. So you can find Deepama as you. Always be with you means you can be her. You can be these qualities and live them in your own particular way. That way she will always live on. I'm going to close with another Deepama chant, which is really specifically for us retreatants. She did it again in 1984 at IMS. And it's a similar thing. It's saying, all beings, all yogis, may you be happy, may you be safe. May all good fortune ensue, and may no suffering come to you. She's really wishing us well in Pali in this chant. Shabbi shatta, shabbi yogi, shukhi hunto, hunto sake minu, shabbi vodrani parsantu, Akunti dukoma koma Shabbi shotta shabbi yogi Shukhi hunto hunto sake minu Shabbi vodrani pashantu Akunti dukoma goma Shabbi shotta shabbi yogi Shukhi hunto hunto sake minu Shabbi vantrani pashantu makunti dukkoma goma. She'll always be with us. So let's sit for one minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.